Welcome back to Conspiracy Club. I'm Tom. I'm Emir. And this week we're continuing our series on Jonestown. Where are we? So last week, we are. So last week we talked about Jim Jones' childhood, how he decided to, you know, form his own church because of his him being barred from involving African Americans in his congregation, um, and his development of his civil rights um, kind of attitudes and what he did for his community and his congregation. And we also talked a little bit about his um, his transformation of messages as he went on. He involved more communism in his, his sermons, and he also was influenced by this guy named Father Divine, who had, was very spiritual um, in the sense that he believed that he was God, that you know, heaven was a state of consciousness that people could heal themselves just by believing in God and all this kind of stuff like that. And so that kind of changes who Jim Jones is. And when we last left off, we talked about how the message began to shift. Um, the message began to shift. Flop that one side down, please. Which side? The other side. Like, just, just do this. Just go that way. No, the other fucking way. Why? Why do you? We gotta cut this. Yeah, you, you act like your hair is always wild, man. That's my goal. It just throws me off. Grant, remember this because you gotta cut this out. Leave it in there. Okay. So that that brings us to where we are right now. So in 1961, Jim Jones claims that he has experienced a prophetic vision in which Chicago is the victim of a nuclear attack. In this vision, Indiana is also destroyed. Indiana is where they're located right now. He frantically convinces his aides that the temple needs to look for a new location for the church. In 1962, Esquire posts a a list of the nine safest places to be in the event of a nuclear war. Brazil tops this list, and Jones, being influenced by this notion, travels through Brazil scouting for something new. All right, this is going to, I'm going to tell you what this reminds me of. Hmm. So, um, there was this pastor named uh, Crefo Dollar. Okay. He's He's a black pastor. So... He tells his congregation that they all need to give a tithe of $1,000 so that he can buy a private jet to deliver the words of God everywhere. So this is what I'll say. They're actually, one of the clips that we'll include in here, I cut it off before in there, but he talks about buying a jet. See? Hey. He had, eventually has through. a different plan, but he talks about it. You need that jetty, you know? Well, that little private life. Yeah. Um. So he claims that. Um. And he frankly looks, he travels to Brazil to look for a new location. Mm-hmm. And while he's there, he seems to disappear for some time. At one point, he even shows up in, Cu- in Cuba and meets with Fidel Castro directly. Okay. That's wild. At this point, he also has a handful of passports, including one issued and collected while Jones was living out of the country. And it was at this time that many believe he was recruited by the CIA to aid an MK Ultra. Which we will talk about more later. Of course, he was. This belief is aided by their sudden uptick in wealth. Um, they started. To, they used to live a humble lifestyle, but now they find themselves living among uh, living a life of luxury. The source of the money is unknown, though Jones claims it was from savings from various activities, including his days as a Korean War veteran and his time scamming old ladies as a gigolo. These are both unconfirmed. Wait, he he claimed that. Yeah, I can see the second one. While in Brazil... They need to do a movie, movie pitch. Jim Jones going through, like, New York, scamming old ladies, giving up the, giving up that, that, that... No. You know? That would be a bad movie. That'd be a good one, dude. Him, imagine Jim Jones, European gigolo. 
Wow. So it's a sequel? Yes. No, no one wanted? Starring, what's his face? Uh, Rob Schneider? Rob Schneider. Yes. So while he's in Brazil, no one really knows what he's doing. Yeah. It's not that. It is. Neighbors. He's giving it up. Now listen, neighbors reported seeing a car from the U.S. console parked outside their home often. And this car was also seen delivering packages and groceries to the family. Even a local newspaper reported that the Jones... The Jones family were CIA agents sent to spy on the Brazilian government. Allegedly, there was a Brazilian detective who looked into these claims as well, but he died before he could finish the investigation. Okay. Wait, okay. Is is there... Okay, we'll probably get into it later, because I'm like, is that... That doesn't sound right at all. What? Well... There's more stuff about MKUltra later, but it's not relevant right now. Actually, it kind of does make sense if Jim was connected to the president... So listen, Shit, I can't hate. In addition, very close to where Jones was staying in Brazil was CIA agent, um, the CIA agent and torture specialist, as well as childhood friend of Jim Jones, oh, okay. Dan Mitrioni. In the area? Yeah, they live very close to each other. Of course they did. Unfortunately, Daniel Mitrioni was assassinated in 1970 by guerrilla revolutionaries in Uruguay while serving as an aide to the Uruguayan government on behalf of the U.S., Around the time of Mitrioni's assassination, the CIA's file on Jim Jones is purged. Huh? Okay. Yeah, Jim was getting some of that CIA. However, money. we do know that publicly Jim Jones was not a fan of the United States um, society at large. So, There's a difference between the government and yeah. society. So as the temple grows, he slowly integrates more overtly communist values into his sermons. It wasn't until the late 60s that he starts to openly address his apostolic socialism uh, ideas. I'm not talking about the pragmatics to build socialism, and I would build socialism by any means possible. I'm talking about things that happen from the evolution of the consciousness of socialism, God, as we call socialism, that consciousness has brought an evolution that does miracles. Man calls them, we call them perfectly normal. Just extra normal, paranormal. We say it's just quite ordinary. But believe me, in such an atmosphere, we cannot do anything but succeed. That actually, uh, it confuses me as to how big like the Red Scare and shit was and how much that people were afraid of communism, that they were allowing like a, a dude to personally be like, fuck yeah, communism openly mm-hmm. in America without him being arrested. Well, that's because he connects it to religion very heavily. I mean, but still, like you can only separate church and state for so long. In this period, he begins to preach to his followers that the Holy Spirit is within them, but that Jones's healing power demonstrated that he was a special manifestation of Christ the Revolution. In this, in these preachings, he would also assert that the U.S. was the Antichrist and capitalism was the Antichrist system. What? So it's not unbelievable that Jones wants to take his church outside of the country. A whole country is the Antichrist? That's what he thought. In his visions of a nuclear holocaust, he reports that the surviving group would create a new socialist Eden on Earth. In 1965, he's given uh, he gives the uh, apocalyptic event a date, July 15, 1967. In response, Jones says that the church needs to move to Redwood Valley, California, which, if you did notice, is still in the U.S. So I was going to say, it's still in the U.S. And not exactly void of where a nuclear strike would occur. 
So actually, it's a, the perfect place for a nuclear. California it's by the water. So in July 1965, Jones leads 140 members to Redwood Valley and establishes his first church here. So why are you protecting things up in Redwood Valley? Well, Redwood Valley is for the great apocalypse. If we have a nuclear holocaust with an earth tremor that will split off all through the San Andreas Fault and drop everything west of the San Andreas Fault into the sea, then we're prepared because I've got a cavern deep, deep in the mountains that can take care of every one of you. No fallout can get to you. No radiation can get to you. You're warm. It's constant temperature, 55 to 62 degrees all year long down there where I've got that. And we've got food for that. Say, well, how many emergencies can there be? There can be that emergency. It's definitely going to take place on 116 to 309. Our people, those that were in the meeting when it came by revelation, know exactly the day, the month, the minute, the year. I will tell everyone about it two weeks before. But in the meantime, there could be a dictatorship that would sweep in. So we have to be prepared to take our flight to the valley in the case of great desolation or the apocalypse or the Armageddon that would spring forth in a nuclear hell, as Peter said, when the elements melt with a fervent heat. We have to be prepared for that, but we also have to be prepared to go to other places in the world if a dictatorship takes over. Because I told you, and I never have broke my word, I told you that not one of my children is going to end up in a concentration camp. I said they'll have to kill us all first. I wish he would just, like, be honest and just say, I want to move to California. Y'all want to come with. Well, he wanted to leave the U.S., so I don't know, he, but he wants to grow his church a little bit beforehand. But he probably wants to, yeah, he probably wants to grow the church in the U.S. first and then take the people from the U.S. to there. Because they're the ones with the And this works the money. because their membership begins to grow and the church earns credibility. And when deputy, uh, especially when deputy district attorney Timothy Stone becomes a member. And he plays a very relevant role as this. Uh, Wait, what is his role again? Uh, deputy district attorney. And so he plays a very relevant role as the church progresses. So they allow their district attorney to get with the guy who was like, yay, communism. Yeah. What year is this? This is 1965. Really? So it's a little bit after 50s, and Still. which is like the peak McCarthyism, but... Exactly. No, even if after the 60s is when the Cold uh, War... This is, like, this is like hippy-dippy time as well, so... Yeah, hippy dippy time for them, but still shit going it, it, on. It happened. Fucking, uh, whatchamacallit isn't dead yet. JFK. Yeah. Um, so we were in Cold War times. Yes, we definitely were. Jones now shifts um, his focus um, from integrating or to integrating Christianity with communism even more. Uh, or excuse me. He now shifts from integrating Christianity with communism to almost totally rejecting Christianity. He remarks on it as a, quote, flyaway religion and starts to reject the Bible as the white man's justification to dominate women and enslave people of color. Okay, all right, woke, Jim. He even goes so far as to author and distribute, distribute a booklet entitled The Letter Killeth, which pointed out what Jones considered to be contradictions, absurdity, excuse me, absurdities and atrocities in the Bible. Jones <laughs> preaches at the divine principle which equates with love also equates with socialism and that God of the Bible contained beliefs about, and that the God of the Bible contained beliefs about only a quote, sky God or buzzard God who was not actually a God at all. 
What is at the base of the division between people? What do you think is greater, the greater antagonism? Is it uh, uh, race, uh, is it uh, religion, or is it class? Distinctly, it is class. Distinctly, it's money. There would be no... Uh, religion's only an outpicturing of the problem that separates people. Now, why don't you wake up? This is the most important question of the evening. The thing that causes religion is a class war. If there were no rich, no poor, if everyone were equal, religion would be soon to disappear. People only develop religion when they're unhappy with this world. But if this world were equal, if everything was equal, every opportunity, every, all of the land facilities, all the health facilities, all of the food, every beautiful thing of this earth was available to all, people would soon lose their religion. And there would be no racial differences if everyone was equal. There was no race, there was no rich or poor, there wasn't a class system. That's what you mean by class system. Division between people based on their money. There would be no room for race. Race is developed because the rich want someone to do their slave work, servant work. And the black people just happen to be the slaves of this generation. I will not review the 13th chapter of Mark because it says the same thing, only some errors. The story is told just a little different. Every time you read the Bible, the story is told just a little different. That's what King James has done to the Bible. It's like four people is on a corner watching an accident. Not one of them can tell the truth about it. They all see it differently. And most churches will say, that's the way you've got to take the Bible, four people witnessing. Well, we don't take four people on a corner and judge our life by what four people on the corner say, do we? But this Bible is to be taken as what constitutes hell and heaven, your fate, your future, everything you do. The church tells you you've got to believe according to this Bible. And yet these preachers will stand when you show them a discrepancy and they'll say, well, look at it this way. It was like four different people looking at an accident. Well, if these people are just people, then throw it away. We don't need people. We're not looking for four people that were watching an accident. We want to hear God tell what he's doing himself. We want God to speak for himself. We don't want four people telling us what God said. We want God to tell us for himself. Say, you can't expect that. Oh, yes, you can expect that. If you don't have it, then God is a liar. Because it is written, God is no respect to persons. Out of one blood, he made all nations. That's why I have Jesus' blood. There's only one blood. God is no respect to persons. Said what he's done for one, he'll do for all. You sing a song, what he's done for you, he'll do for others. Tis no secret what he's done for you, he can do for all. Now, if he appeared to Nebuchadnezzar, who was a racist who owned slaves, Nebuchadnezzar and the king of Babylon in the fire furnace, he looked out there, he saw Ashach, Meshach, Abednego, and then, baby, he looked and he saw Jesus Christ, God. Right? You say, I worship God because he created me out there, the sky God. And yet the earth is filled with dung. Two out of three babies go to bed hungry, according to President Nixon. Wars, rumors of wars, race against race, Irish against Irish, black against black, the world filled with pain. I've brought you no pain. Everyone that comes near me gets life and healing and deliverance and freedom. Yet people say, well, you've got to worship, you've got to love your daddy because your daddy brought you into the world. 
No, you don't. You're not to know any man after the flesh. Some of you have daddies that brought you in because they were drunk. You're not supposed to worship your daddy because he's your daddy. You're only supposed to respect your daddy if he's a good daddy. But we've got a good daddy here. Blessings. The unknown God never helped you, but this house has helped you. You never had a promise that you'd never be lonely, that you'd never be homeless. You never had the sky God promise you that. But the God that took upon flesh and bones, not the creator. I've never said I would create you. I said I'd save you. I said I would recreate you. I would reform you. I said I would save you. And that I do. So Jim, at this point, is like, fook white people. I mean, sorry, fook white men. Kind of. He's kind of, he's kind of like... But it's ironic because he like, he's a white He doesn't man. like this organization as a whole. And he thinks that like our government has constantly been enslaving people and and all he this jazz. Be, he's honestly not lying. I would give him a... a, a yeah, because segregation is still around at this point. So I would give him a high five on that one. I mean, I wouldn't give him a high five because like, I'd stay away from him. But I'd be like, eh, I can see what he's talking about. So the church is growing, but due to their location, it wasn't growing as fast as they'd like. And it makes sense to move the seat of the church to a more urban area in California. Urban. So, in 1970, the temple began to uh, hold services in San Francisco and Los Angeles, where it later established permanent facilities. By 1972, the church um, was calling Redwood Valley, excuse me, the temple was calling Redwood Valley the, quote, mother church of a statewide political movement. Their more metropolitan locations only served as a way to recruit more members and serve as a way station for the temple's weekly bus trips across California to Redwood Valley. By the mid-70s, the People's Temple membership inflated to nearly 3,000 members. Marceline, as well as several other members of the temple, um, were working at the Mendocino State Hospital. This hospital was part of an experiment to deinstitutionalize the mentally ill. But as it was defunded, the temple funneled members into their own care facilities, including a 40-acre facility known as Happy Acres. But as this defunding and deconstruction occurred, Mendocino State Hospital was one of the many locations alleged to have engaged in experiments with LSD, electrotherapy, and mind control as part of MKUltra. Okay, okay. So Marceline also is a part of the, this governmental... Maybe. Well, okay, so knowing that part of MK, MKUltra came out, was there ever a connection in said files with Jim Jones or any of them? In the re- research that I've done, there wasn't anything that pointed to it directly. Okay. Well, directly. They're, they talk about, about later. Indirectly. We'll talk about that later, okay? Okay. That's, this is... As most know it, yeah. uh, as most know it, Jones was the autocratic ruler of the temple. temple. However, the truth is that the temple had a complex leadership structure with a decision-making power unevenly um, distributed across its members. With this leadership, members were subjected to sophisticated mind control and behavior modification techniques, which they developed from post-revolutionary China and North Korea. Okay. In the 70s, the temple created a more formal hierarchy for its socialist model. The top consisted of a select group of 8 to 10 unquestionably obedient college-educated women that undertook the temple's most sensitive missions. The group was shamed for being elitist within the egalitarian temple and seen quite frequently as the secret police. The temple's planning commission was its governing board. 
Membership for this was over 100, and members convened for weekly meetings in various Redwood Valley locations. This group was responsible for day-to-day operations, including important decision-making, financial and legal planning, and oversight duties. It was also tasked by Jim Jones with spying on members. The Planning Commission oversaw other committees as, committees as well, such as, that, such as the Diversions Committee, which was created to carry out tasks such as writing huge quantities of letters to politicians from fictional citizens from various locations around the U.S. To do what? I don't know. Uh, get in support of Jones. I they are very political as, a, as an organization. Clearly. They also oversaw the Myrtles Committee. committee. That's a terrible name. We'll talk about why it's named then. Two seconds. The Myr- this um, Myrtles Committee undertakes activities against defectors from the church. Oh, no. So the Myrtles Committee and its name. The name for the committee comes from the past Temple members, Al and Jeannie Mills, who were at the time known as Elmer and Deanna Myrtle. The couple left the church in 1974 after witnessing the brutal abuse of their daughter during a church ceremony. Oh, no. Before becoming um, some of its most vocal critics. Following their defection, they founded the Human Freedom Center as a refuge for other defectors and were active in the Concerned Relatives Organization. The Concerned Relatives Organization, I'll talk about a little bit, a little bit about it now, but it comes relevant later as well. And it's a group formed by former members, by former People's Temple members, families of those involved, and other critics of the church. This was also organized by the Mills, and the group was operated under the belief that members of the People's Temple were being held captive in Jonestown. They described the settlement as one of the places that Jim Jones often preached against in his sermons, a concentration camp. Oh, they believed that those who tried to defect would be killed and also warned of a possibility that they would commit mass suicide. <laughs> so they were on the money. Woo! Hey, man, he knows. Jones was well aware. Do they murder the people who leave? Um, there, we'll talk about it later, but there's this, there is a lot of bodies that come up and people, they, they can't be tied directly to them, but there are some substance to claims that they were by members that they were killed because they defected Okay. as well. We'll talk about this. Oh no, we'll talk about this right now. Jones is well aware of males and often lashed out against them in sermons in 1980, which is after the Jonestown incidents, the family is murdered in their home, Huh? save for their son, Eddie, who was left unharmed. Though his innocence has been maintained by the family, he was arrested and charged. Um, some theorists believe their deaths were carefully orchestrated, um, were the carefully orchestrated event activities of a hit squad of Jonestown survivors. Why would he leave his... How old was the son when he left uh, his family? I have no idea. Old enough to kill his family, I guess. Oh, they said the son killed the family. Yeah, yeah. Was he ever in Jonestown? No, but this, they, they're not in Jonestown either. This is afterwards. No, but I'm saying, was his son ever a part of Jonestown? Not, not directly. So why would he be the one to kill his parents? Because he would never know how Jonestown was. Well, they're not necessarily they killed him because of Jonestown. But the people that are... But I'm saying, they're saying that the son killed his parents. Yes, and his sister. So why would he kill them if he was never because directly... Just any any murder motive... That is a stupid motive. That doesn't make sense. He was the, left in the house unharmed, so that's why they think that it was him. Even if he was the only one unharmed, and he was, he convicted. was lucky. Well, still, they don't have any proof that there's a hit squad of Jonestown survivors that went, went after them. I can see that. Um, so there's also a group of regular members who are called the Troops by Outsiders. The Troops were working class members who were 70 to 80% black, and they set up chairs for meetings, filled offering boxes, among other duties. Why, why did he stop at 70 to 80%? It's just like majority. He, oh, he's saying like there's 70 to 80% of them were black. Yes. 
So 20% was not. Yeah. I thought you were saying like <laughs> they were mostly black. Oh, no, no. But there was like 20% of them was white. Yeah, that'd and be, I was that's like, a really fine line to walk. That's very specific. Like, I don't know why would he would specifically choose that number of like. No, he didn't. It's just mostly. He's like, you can only have this much black in you. So Jones also surrounds himself with several dozen mostly white privileged members in their 20s and 30s who had skills in law, accounting, nursing, teaching, music, and administration. This inner circle was responsible for public relations, financial duties, and bringing in good salaries to the church. At a lot of this point, um, people that are part of the church, they they sign over the custody of their children. That's wild. And they also sign over all of their money that they make to the church. It's also wild. It's part of this like communal socialism the thing. The children one doesn't make sense. The money one I can see. Um, the temple had control. Well, remember that Father Divine believed in uh, that the children should be assigned to guardians instead of their parents. So let's talk about fundraising because they have a lot of money. Temple, the temple had control of 10 to 15 Greyhound type buses used to transport members up and down California freeways each week for recruiting and fundraising. Jones always rode bus number seven which contained armed guards and featured protective metal plates. He told members that unless the trips could net at least $100,000, it was pointless. That means that they're netting $100,000 a week, which is pretty astronomical. Beginning in the 1970s, the buses began to branch out outside of California, traveling to D.C. In 1973, Representative George Brown Jr. entered a lengthy description of the temple into the congressional record praising them. Three times it gives three separate praises here that they're written out. It will always be in the permanent library of Congress. The congressional record remarks E3559. There's never a church in history that had that, and the only way it came was by us working together, showing that we were loyally united, showing that we support right causes, showing that when we move, we move as one man. Right. You can't buy publicity like that for hundreds of thousands of dollars. This goes, this goes to every library in the United States, to every library across the world, to every radio station, to every newspaper throughout the entire United States. Here we are in the House of Representatives, People's Temple, Christian Church, Support First Amendment Freedom. And then it goes on down telling all the good works that we do. This is so weird, the whole process of them getting like... The funds for one. And it's just like everyone can clearly like it to me. It looks like it's getting weird. Well, not yet, because in 1973, well, first of all, we have that congressional record, which they were very proud of. And in 1973, the Washington Post, very notable newspaper, said that the 660 temple visitors were, quote, hands down winners of anybody's tourist of the year award after spending time cleaning the Capitol grounds. On these trips, the temple would distribute pamphlets praising Jones' spiritual healing abilities while also suspiciously neglecting to mention their communist agenda. Well, that's smart. The temple set up Truth Enterprises, a direct mailing branch that sent out 30,000 to 50,000 mailers monthly to people who attended services or reached out after hearing temple radio shows. They received donations from across the U.S., South America, and Europe. They also raised money by selling Jones's robes, healing oils, temple rings, keychains, and lockets. This mailer revenue, yeah, this mailer revenue, earned the temple up to four hundred dollars every day. Every day, wait, well, that's not a lot. But still, In nineteen seventy, yeah, I mean, so by this point, he's international. Yeah, he's getting money from everywhere. 
That's yeah, a, that's, they're a dominant force. That is. That is. He has a lot of... His bases are covered. Some numbers claim the temple had reached nearly 20,000 members. Damn. This is considered a gross exaggeration, though. Oh, okay. What we do know is that 5,000 individual membership card photos were located in temple records after its dissolution, and that the San Francisco services regularly drew in 3,000 people um, to them. Okay. So and, it's really around like 5,000. Yeah, uh, at least, yeah. 20,000 was wild. And despite their growing shift towards some more radical religious beliefs, the church had earned a reputation for aiding the city's poorest citizens, particularly minorities, drug addicts, and the homeless. They had a strong connection to the California state welfare system. And during the 70s, the People's Temple owned and operated at least nine nursing homes for the elderly, six homes for foster children, and a state-licensed 40-acre ranch for disabled persons, that happy acres that we mentioned. Sociologist John Hall described the People's Temple as a charismatic bureaucracy. I'm not going to lie. Like, he doesn't... Well, he's... this At this point, he seems shitty, but it's like there's certain things that he doesn't want. I don't know. This is where stuff begins to crumble now. So in 1972, the San Francisco... That wasn't crumbling to you? No, just wait. This is where it like really starts to get crumbly. In 1972, San Francisco Examiner and the Indianapolis Star ran the first four parts of a seven-part story on the People's Temple written by Lester Kinsolving. This was the temple's first public expose piece. Consolving noted several aspects of church dealings, its claims of healings, and Jones's ritual of throwing Bibles down in church while yelling, This black book has held you down for 2,000 years. It has no power. The response to a previous program, and the response is from Michael J. Prokes of the People's Temple Christian Church. Mr. Prokes? In the course of the conversation on the air between Art Finley and Reverend Lester Consolving recently, Consolving, without any warning or prompting whatever, proceeded to attack and malign Reverend Jim Jones and the People's Temple Disciples of Christ of Ukiah, California. Consolving said Reverend Jones has people believing he raises people from the dead, said it would be nice if someone would go up and exorcise him, stated that upon visiting this church, he had worn his collar, that he had been seized, that he had his photographer grabbed, and that he was himself interrogated by the assistant district attorney, and stated that his home had been burglarized for the first time in eight years, three days after the examiner was picketed by 150 people put there by the church. We of People's Temple assert that these statements by Kinsolving are untrue, malicious, and outrageous. We of People's Temple assert the following, that Kinsolving visited our church on at least two occasions and was allowed in to take notes each time, that there are many witnesses to the fact that Kinsolving did not wear his collar, that Kinsolving was not seized by us, that a member of the church who happens to be an assistant district attorney offered to show Kinsolving around the children's home, the senior citizen homes, and other projects of the church and that Consolving said he was not interested. That the assistant DA did not, in any sense of the word, interrogate Consolving, nor was Consolving's photographer in any way grabbed, and that we know these charges are patently absurd. We of People's Temple ask, if Consolving was so threatened, why did he come back the following week by himself? We of People's Temple declare it outrageous for Consolving to imply 
that the church members burglarized his house. The charge goes far beyond the realm of decency and fairness. We know that not a scintilla of evidence exists linking any member of People's Temple with the alleged burglary. Reverend Jones has said that every member of his church is willing to take a polygraph lie detector test to prove it. I ask that Consolving do the same. Finally, we of People's Temple say that it is equally outrageous for Consolving to call to exercise the ordained pastor who has been praised by high officials of his own nationwide denomination of nearly two million and many others, and who works day and night without thought of reward to relieve human suffering and has inspired thousands to do the same. We would like to thank AGO and Art Finley for the opportunity to respond to our one critic's allegations. Thank you. Thank you. A response read by Michael J. Prokes of the People's Temple Christian Church. The time now is 14 minutes past 10. That's wild. In response... That clip was crazy. <laughs> in response, the temple picketed the examiner and threatened both papers with libel lawsuits. The extensive backlash caused both papers to cancel the series after the fourth installment. Wait, is that the yelling one? Was that the yelling clip? No. Oh, God, that's such a funny clip. We didn't play the second clips for you. So you didn't oh. hear them between oh, episodes. Oh, man. Um, so they, they canceled the series after the fourth installments. To keep face, shortly after this incident, Jim Jones made grants to newspapers in California with the stated goal of supporting the First Amendment. So let's talk about defectors, which you mentioned previously with the Myrtles Committee. Myrtle. As with all churches or cults, defections do occur. And the temple was so weary of these defectors um, that we know they had a committee, uh, excuse me, a committee which existed to take action against those that left the church. I like committee more. Yeah. One of the most notable groups to defect is known as the, quote, Gang of Eight, who were considered by the temple to be a significant threat to potential defectors. Jones deployed them, or excuse me, Jones deployed multiple search parties after them, including using airplanes to monitor highways. Damn. The gang drove three trucks and avoided major highways heading for the hills of Montana, where they wrote a long letter documenting their issues with the People's Temple. They said, somebody's going to get us. They tried to make him think we were going to get them. We never get anybody. But when people's consciences get bad, they think almost anybody's going to get them. We don't bother. Don't worry. If you want to go their way, you can go their way. We won't stop you. We don't put up that kind of barrier. But then he said they said other things like there might have been somebody else after them. And with all the stuff they're doing, maybe indeed somebody else is after them. We will probably not know for several hours just exactly all that they have done. But we had to call this meeting to take an official action to sever ourselves from them. These anarchistic tendencies, these tendencies to violence and unnecessary hunting, the use of arms, as sexual sublimations, I think. And we're talking about a Guevara now, not a Tubman. We're not talking about people trying to get from slavery. We're talking about people who have, whatever they think they're doing, they've hurt the trust of hundreds and hundreds of people. They're not on any quest for freedom. They're on a quest to do their own thing. So Jim got money money at this point to be in a helicopter just to follow people? Yeah. I could never. He was infuriated. Your fave cult leader would never. (laughs) 
he was infuriated and temple defector uh, Jeannie Mills was still around at this point. And she wrote that following the event, Jim Jones called 30 members to his home and declared that, quote, in order to keep our apostolic socialism, we, m- we should all kill ourselves and leave a note saying that because of harassment, a socialist group cannot exist at this time. Like I said, Jones was enraged. He began to wave a pistol in a meeting with the planning commission while threatening any potential defectors. The temple did not follow through with this suicide plan, but did conduct a series of fake suicide rituals. They they actually never did a suicide. Mm, that's not true. Mm. So back Prove to the wrong. back to the story. The temple um, resituated themselves to San Francisco because of how much how popular they are, uh, where it again tightens its grip and increased their emphasis on communal living and stressed physical discipline of children and adults alike. They began to be more careful about who they allowed to join, vetting newcomers through an extensive observation process. What separated People's Temple from other religious movements was that. W- at its heart, it was a political movement. It seemed a happy place, recalled one ex-believer. So many young people and so much apparent concern for the poor. That was in the mid-60s when Jim Jones, recently arrived from Indiana, was beginning to attract hundreds to his people's temple, farm, and church in the small northern California town of Redwood Valley. Jones moved his church headquarters to San Francisco eight years ago and aligned himself with some of the city's top politicians. In 1976, Jones, seen here in dark glasses to the right, attended a campaign rally with Rosalind Carter. He became first a member and then chairman of the San Francisco Housing Authority, shortly after Mayor George Moscone had credited him with helping win his election. If he believes in a candidate, he... uh... He went all out for him. I mean, he he uh, told people that this is a man who's, uh, who believes as we do in nonviolence and in uh, trying to rectify wrongs and a uh, decent person, and he could he could impress people. I know the reputation he had when I asked him two over two years ago to serve on the housing authority was that he was a man of uh, peacefulness, of, of quietude, a person who uh, discouraged the use of violence, uh, particularly among poor and frustrated people who wanted to help them to rehabilitate themselves, to keep away from drugs and alcohol, and and he performed as a member of the housing authority in that fashion. So they were talking about, at this point, well, I feel like at the start, it always seemed like it was a political movement. It seemed more political than, you know, religion-based. Yeah. I mean, outside of the whole, like, I'm, I'm a god. But listen to this, because this is where they get very involved. We already know he was on the Human Rights Commission, or whatever it was called, in Indianapolis. Yes. But... Um, like he had been in Indianapolis, Jones only grew his public status. In 1975, George Moscone appointed Jones chairman of the San Francisco Housing Authority Commission. Jones and the temple received an outpouring of support from people such as Governor of California Jerry Brown, Lieutenant Governor Mervyn Dimley, Assemblyman Willie Brown, San Francisco Mayor George Moscone, like we just mentioned, R. Agnos, and Harvey Milk. Jones was a rising Really? Fig- Harvey Milk. Yeah. Wow. He was a rising figure in politics. He even met privately with vice presidential candidate Walter Mondale, as well as first lady Rosalind Carter on several occasions. Oh, Jimmy, you're always at the wrong side of history. To prevent any more kin-solving incidents, Jones forged a friendship with San Francisco's Sun reporter Carlton Goodlett, which led to frequent positive publications about the church. It's really smart to do that because then you get the society, well, not the society, but the people on your side anyway. So then, like, no one's ever going to be like, 
well, I read in the paper that Jim's a nice guy. Because this is especially back when everything like really mattered with newspapers before everyone was like, news is fake. So it's very smart. He's smart. But was it the board? So things begin to sour for the temple even more when Jones praises the radical Bay Area group known as the Symbionese Liberation Army. Five suspected members of the Symbionese Liberation Army are dead following the bloodiest and most massive gun battle in the history of Los Angeles. Hundreds of police and FBI agents surrounded this small house on East 54th Street in the South Central area of the city. Shortly before 6 p.m., gunfire erupted. For more than an hour, thousands of rounds of automatic weapons and small gunfire were exchanged between police and the suspects inside the house. Six tear gas assaults were made in an attempt to flush out the fugitives, until finally, houses on either side, as well as the pink wood and stucco fortress, caught fire. A fire believed to have been started by an exploding gas canister. bodies were burned beyond recognition and awaited final positive identification following coroner's autopsies. It was an incredible, almost unbelievable ending to the most intensive manhunt of recent years. And yet, it was viewed as it happened by millions watching on national television. This is Pete Miller in Los Angeles. Never heard of that. A left-wing militant organization that committed bank robberies, murders, and other violent acts. The members and leaders of this self-described vanguard army were frequent attenders of San Francisco temple meetings. The temple, uh, excuse me, tensions rose between the temple and the nation of Islam, and to try to repair their image, the temple held a large spiritual jubilee in the Los Angeles Convention Center, which was attended by thousands. Wait, so the temple is beefing, like Jim Joseph's temple is beefing with the nation of Islam? Yes. Shit, hey, if you, if you know what I know, and what Malcolm X know, you don't want to fuck with the nation of Islam. And even though they had worked to forge strong relationships with members of the media, the move to a more urban setting opened the doors to greater media scrutiny. Hmm. And that's where we're going to end it this episode. That was... So there's so many like like plot lines into this story. Like Jim first the nation of Islam is wild. Jim and all his connections are wild. Like... Would you consider Jim Jones like a leftist terrorist too? Uh, to some extent, yeah. I just wanted to ask that. I wanted to um, ask that. So next episode, we're going to talk about, um, right now they're in San Francisco, we're going to talk about Jim Jones and his move south to Guyana. Ooh. And that is where things really go into the deep end. Oh yeah, we all know. Well, you don't what know What happens yet, in Guyana? But yeah. I know what happens in Guyana. This, this is not going well. Maybe that, maybe a people's temple is not a club you want to join, but you know what is a club you want to join? Conspiracy Club. Oh, look at you. And you can do so by following us on Twitter and Instagram at Tom and Amir. That's T-O-M-A-N-D-E-M-I-R. If only you were able to do that, that one time when we spent a whole hour reading <laughs> stuff, that would have been perfect. But, uh, yeah, like, you kind of... You want me to end it? If you have stuff to say, yeah, go for it. Well, next week, folks, we're going to keep on going down this this rabbit hole of Jim Jones and his wild, wacky shit he does. 
So join us and join the club as we continue on our path. But like I say at the end of every episode, wow, Grant thought that episode was fleet. <laughs> <laughs>